welcome, welcome, welcome to a brand new episode of the Spiraling Podcast. I am your host, Jackson Wallace. I got my, I got a kind of a sub here today. Okay, so we have a little thing going on. Uh, Jason is not feeling well. He's not feeling super good. But we have longtime guest Chelsea Casciola joining us. Chelsea, how are you this morning? I'm great. Good to have you. Good to have you. Thanks for coming, subbing in out of the bullpen. We sure appreciate that as, as Jason's kind of recovering. But we have another guest, uh, first guest of the 2021 season, Gordon Corsetti. Gordon is a public speaker, referee, nerd, and a depressive who has developed workshops with the goal of helping people learn about how and why they think and demonstrate techniques that they can use to de-stress, quiet the mind, and better manage their daily lives. He is the founder of MentallyAgile.com and our next guest on the show and also a vest aficionado how are you doing gordon i'm doing quite well jackson thank you for that uh, energetic introduction looking forward to this talk oh good hey it's we're super glad to have you here i, I was i was mentioning before in the pre-show i felt so bad man because like before we, we were planning to have you on earlier then we had to kind of delay and pump the brakes a little bit but we finally got you back on and so i'm, I'm super super happy that you're here man same, same here. Let's uh, let's get rolling. First question is: I mentioned this in, in, in the intro. So you, I, I was going through your website, and I saw that you call yourself a vest aficionado. Seeing that you're wearing one today, all right. Go. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit just how important the vest is? Uh, yeah, the vest has turned into, uh, as I got more into public speaking, a bit of a uh, of my uniform on stage or, or digitally now on screen. Yeah. Um, so I've spent uh, spent years as a competitive athlete, you know, put on a uniform, go out and play as a referee, put on stripes. It gets me in the right mindset to do whatever I'm doing. Uh, sure. And as I as I got into public speaking, I'm like, you know what? I need a uniform. And I kind of always felt that I was uh, born outside the wrong decade or in the wrong you know generation yeah. and my style is a little bit more dapper on, on that end and, and uh, i watch a lot of peaky blinders and i, I enjoyed the, sna- the the scally cap as well so i'm like you know what i think a vest will do well and it worked for me and that's that's what i wear on stage and, and when i'm presenting and doing podcasts it just puts me in the right mindset i love that man i love that you know i i, I think i might need to add a vest to my repertoire okay i, I highly it, recommend it it's good for everything i mean you can wear a vest to to any event Right. Yeah. Business casual. You're good to go. Right. Yeah, uh, it, it looks great. And I got extra pockets. So I, I got little little, you know, mementos or a snack or something. Sure. Those are more handy than you think. A little uh-huh. extra pocket. By the way, guys, everybody out there listening, if you have if you have a little extra pocket, it's super helpful. But all right, man, uh, it, maybe you can uh, go ahead and, and maybe, you know, one good thing that we love about this podcast is we encourage our our, uh, our our guests to come on here and just kind of tell their story. You know what I mean? They have a platform to come in and just kind of, you know, expand on uh, on their thoughts and everything. So can you maybe you could tell us a little bit about yours? Certainly. So I am 32 now, uh, raised in Georgia uh, and uh, started experiencing depressive symptoms at, at around 15 years old and okay. dealing with with depression. uh primarily and then to a lesser extent anxiety uh, from 15 until still to, d- to this day. Yeah. Um, the, the challenge that I ran into at a younger age is that I didn't know what was going on mentally in my head. I didn't have uh, a sense that anything was was wrong, so to speak. Uh, so I didn't and I also didn't have a vocabulary to explain what it was I was thinking to the people that cared about me. Uh, so mm-hmm. I was uh, both literally and figuratively in the dark with this. Um, and to give you a sense of just kind of where my headspace was at, 
uh, at 15, 16 years old, and I'm having these these recurring thoughts of I'm worthless, I don't deserve life, nobody loves me, I am not, I'm a burden to other people. These thoughts kept on gaining intensity and gaining frequency in my everyday and weighing me down significantly. But I was under a misapprehension that this was the natural consequence of growing into an adult. I felt that everybody else was dealing with these same things, teachers, parents, my older peers, whatever, and that they were dealing with these same thoughts that I was dealing with, but they were clearly dealing with it so much better than I was. Like they were smiling, they were doing stuff, they were being successful in the Mm -hmm. activities they chose to do. uh, And I was barely hanging on by my fingernails. And that is that led me to to uh, to keep that very internal and develop some very unhealthy coping mechanisms along with that. And I learned a lot of behaviors that, yeah, that worked in the short term, uh, but long term effects. I'm still dealing with some of the, lear- the learned behaviors and habits that I established at that young age. And, and a lot of the therapy I've been in over the last 15 years yeah. is working to kind of remove some of that. Um, but I had my, my first uh, suicidal episode at, at 18, uh, at the tail end of my senior year of high school. Uh, it was an, an aborted attempt. A friend uh, interacted with me. If, if folks want to dive deep into that story, there's a you can Google lacrosse save my life, a story of friendship and survival. That's on lacrosse magazine. That's how I got uh, uh, putting my story out there a few years ago publicly has gotten me now into uh, mental health uh, and suicide prevention advocacy work. Yeah. So uh, that is, is, is what I'm passionate about is now teaching young people uh, and also their families, just kind of the warning signs of uh, suicidality, uh, but also better ways to manage depression, anxiety, the, the, the ways in which the human brain thinks, whether or not you have a diagnosable mental illness or not. So that's, uh, I say I've tested these things to a fairly extreme level. I know they work. So here's, here's kind of... Uh, how it's, it's worked for me and, and give it a go, which is why I enjoy doing these kind of podcasts because I get to share to different audiences uh, the fact that, you know, we're all human. We all have brains. So this stuff crosses age gaps and ethnic gaps and cultural gaps. Bunch of different demographics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, it, it's one of those things like I never don't have an audience because this is this is universal stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, and then so from 18, I, I came off of that. I, I got into college. I had a weird, rocky time in that. It was not a good space. Uh, for me mentally, uh, and I'm also at the worst decision-making period of my life at 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, and so for, for the, the most of my early and mid-20s was just, was just rocky um, of, of regular hospitalizations, uh, frequent suicide attempts, um, uh, notably by hanging, by overdose, uh, and by a handgun. Wow, yeah. Uh, and, and those... Each time after those, I, I wound up back in another hospital for a couple of weeks and, and back into another round of fairly intensive inpatient um, and outpatient psychotherapy. Uh, and, and over that whole interviewing period, a, a lot of different um, uh, medications and medication combinations to try to figure out what was working for me. And the thing that, that, that I ran into, which took me a long time to learn, was that you can't cold turkey these medications. Um, they, yeah. they, they, they don't work well on that front and then the brain suddenly doesn't have these feel-good chemicals or these boosters and it doesn't know what the heck's going on and then you just take a dive which is what precipitated many of my suicidal episodes um and so that was that was most of my 20s was was dealing with with a great deal of, of severe depression and social anxiety and keeping this still very close to the vest like not a lot of folks really knew on that front uh, and then I wound up moving to Baltimore for work to work at U.S. Lacrosse, and, and that became a very safe place with a lot of trusted coworkers and friends that I made that allowed me to 
kind of share a little bit of that darkness inside of me and what I was going on. And I had a pen, uh, one of the worst panic attacks of my life up there uh, at a, at a yeah. friend's wedding. And that led to a six month hospitalization. And, uh, and, and that slowly got me, uh, I, I learned a lot more about myself in that process. And then a move kind of you know, taking things to the present. Now uh, a move back to Georgia to be closer to my family and friends, uh, one for just uh, personal satisfaction on that, but also just for my own well-being. It's a stronger social safety net for me, which has been a big cornerstone of my ongoing recovery, what I call my permanent recovery from depression. And the coming back, I, I, I experienced only good things. And, and the brain doesn't really distinguish between good stress or bad stress. It's all stress. And so I had so much good stuff going on. My brain kind of freaked out. Uh, and yeah. I went back in the hospital this time at Emory and I had a whole bunch of doctors saying, Hey, would you like to try electroconvulsive therapy? And I'm like, well, I've tried everything else. Let's give this a go. And, uh, that's still one of the most effective methods for getting people out of a, of a, um, uh, depressive crater rapidly uh, and that has since pushed my my suicidal thinking that let's just say conservatively from 15 until let's say last year uh, wow. this time yeah. last last year I, I would have a suicidal thought every day if not more um, specific vague whatever um, sometimes minute by minute and that ECT treatment uh, pushed those thoughts into the periphery of my mind and lessened the frequency of it. So this past year, I, I've been ecstatic to have weeks go by without realizing that I haven't thought about killing myself, number one, uh, but two, even when those things pop up, they're much less intense. And so now the, the techniques and the therapies and the habits of good coping skills that I've developed over the last 15 years are, are proving much more effective uh, because my, my brain has a little bit more space to work with those. And now in the last two years of doing, two, two and a half years of doing advocacy work with, with mental agility and, and my website, mentallyagile.com and, and podcast interviews and trainings and workshops and talking to schools. Uh, it, it's an opportunity for me to continue my therapeutic journey uh, in, in, in still a way that I can control because I can control what's coming out of my mouth and what I share and all yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I, I get to I get to uh, now take the, the worst aspects of, of my life uh, and, and, and finally be able to put a positive spin on them and for other people's benefits. So uh, that, that does a, a, a lot of uh, lifting for uh, my soul, so to speak, and and does a lot of good for keeping me in a, in a healthy uh, and, and forward thinking mindset. Wow, <clears throat> man, that's a lot. That's a lot to unpack there, man. Well, uh, uh, number one, I'm glad you're feeling better now. Thank I'm you. glad you're doing better, and and the thoughts are a little less, um, a little less intense and, and, and less frequent. Chelsea, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. If you sound like you maybe had a question or something to follow up with, no, no I do have a question. Okay, um, but so I, my background, I so I worked in the the mental health field for about seven years, uh, predominantly with uh, substance abuse. Um, so I'm in recovery myself. Um, those that have listened to our show know that I've got 10 years sober. Um, but with addiction comes a lot of the same, um, characteristics, you know, you go through different spells of depression, obviously, instead of killing yourself drug wise, you want to just do it fast. So you don't have to live that way anymore. Um, and you know, I've lost a lot of friends, um, due to suicide, unfortunately being in recovery myself, as well as working in the field, I've lost a lot of clients as well. Um, and so one of the things that I'm curious to hear your intake on is, and this comes from, you know, me personally feeling these things at, 
in, in the past, but also having clients um, and others that I know feel the same way is, you know, when you're in that depression in the midst of it, you know, it's this, this constant real lies, you know, that nobody's going to understand. You can't tell anybody these things that are going through your head. Um, I've gone, gotten to the point, um, where I actually went to the emergency room knowing, knowing that I needed to be put on medication again. Um, and you know, the, the doctor was like, do you have a plan? And I was like, that's a loaded question. I'm not trying to get hospitalized. I'm here. I'm not going to act on it. I know what I need to be on. Um, you know, so I guess my question to you is, you know, when you're in the bottom of the barrel, you know, and feeling, you know, like nobody will understand it's, it's, it's a feeling of loneliness that only those that have experienced it can understand. Right. So it, what, what would your response be to someone that's in, you know, that the midst of that, of nobody's going to understand, nobody's ever felt like this, um, you know, as far as the suicidal ideations. Uh, well, first, con- congratulations on, on the 10 years of sobriety. That's a, that's a hell of a milestone. Um, and and the, the difficulty in that needs to be celebrated. Um, to your question, the it, it's it's different for everyone. And, and this is where I have to uh, kind of take a, uh, I think, an unfortunate break between what we know rationally and logically and what we know with emotions and feelings. Um, the the space that somebody is in when they are in a serious depression and when they are considering suicide as an option to end the pain that they are currently in. Uh, Edwin Schneidman, who is uh, the father of modern suicidology, uh, he called it thanatology, a study of death, but he, he in the 60s and 70s started researching the, the notes that people would leave um, and trying to get a sense of the, of the mindset of somebody beforehand. And the, the, the biggest thing that he noticed was what he called emotional tunnel vision. And it was emotional constriction where you, you know, to, to give people a, a sense of this, you're in this deep, dark tunnel with emotion wise and logically you know that people care about you that's the unfortunate thing and 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 creates more shame and more stigma and a sense that you can't talk about this to anybody because you know that you're in my case my parents love me my sister loves me Mm -hmm. my friends care about me um you know uh my dog loves me unconditionally like these things are, are are stuff that i i know in my head and there's a difference between knowing that in your heart, and that's what depression starts robbing you of in that particular space. And that's where the disconnect comes and, and the danger can be because you you genuinely, it, it, it's, you're emotionally numb. And people think that depression is sadness and it's, it's, it's not, it's this weird numbness where you can, you can touch somebody physically, but you cannot feel any emotion coming out of you or coming to you. And it's, for such an ultra social species that we are uh, and that we, we, we rely on such social connection and why we're seeing certainly with, with the continued lockdowns and COVID protocols, this, this is, is messing with people's ability to connect. Um, this depression just robs you of your ability to feel those emotions. And then you get to the point where you're like logically, rationally, everything else in life can be grand, which is where I was about a year and a half ago. Uh, and then, then everything else fell apart in my head. But logically, I'm going, no, no, all this stuff is, all, my life is okay and people care about me, but it didn't matter because I couldn't feel it. And the tough thing about being in your space to, to directly address the question you asked, like, what can somebody do there? Oh, that it's, it's such a 
a hard question because it really does it's so dependent on the structures that somebody has around them uh, th- if anything that I've learned in my 15 years is that my my if my potential for suicidality up until let's say last year with, with the ECT has kind of always been constant uh, the the degree to which I could be lethal towards myself was very varied, right? So, so it's like if I was having these consistent suicidal thoughts, but I might be in a space when I was 24 and I had a handgun, that, that's lethality is way up here. And I purposefully made, made this so I was going to be away from family, be away from friends. The folks I knew were going to be out of state. So that ratchets up that lethality. And the any best tip that I can give anybody in that space or somebody who's, who's concerned about a friend or a family member, loved one, uh, however you want to say it, uh, is that you need to develop more social structures that aren't dependent on you reaching out. There needs to be people checking in on you. So my sister is my biggest one. She and I check in on each other regularly. And I've given her and about four or five other people in my family, my friends, who have uh, the right to ask me repeatedly how I'm doing. Uh, and if I blow them off, that's a signal I've told them that they have to keep on asking that question because I, I will be in that space again. I may not be suicidal, but I will be in that depressive space where I don't want to talk to you, where I physically can't. Uh, and if and if I'm not the one, um, uh, if I can't reach out, then, then I, ha- I have to give permission to others to do that for me, which is why when I lived in an apartment that didn't have a lock and a key code entry, uh, thing, my mom, dad, and my sister all had the key code entry, and if I didn't answer a text for a day or two, they had permission to come over and come into the apartment. And that happened a few times, and it's frustrating as hell as a 32-year-old man to have your mom come in when you're sleeping and want to be yeah. dead to the world. But that's the route that I've had to take to protect myself from myself. So I'd say it's I can't make good decisions in a depressive space. I don't believe anyone can. Uh, you need to be able to offload that to other people that you trust. Right. For sure, for sure. And so you're, you're talking about family and that support structure. And um, I, I think that's very important too, especially us. I love the point you made about being in such a uh, ultra social species. I think that's very important. And, and, and we've, we've seen um, a lot of evidence of that over the past year. So especially with all the different lockdowns and some of the results and consequences from that. But going back to that social structure, I'm curious because you said you and your sister that you guys are very close. You check in on each other. And I think that's great. Um, what was have you ever talked to your sister or talked to your family about what their headspace was at when you were going through? these thoughts and, and, and these problems at, at such a young age? Uh, <clears throat> yes, they, they were scared. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was, that was the biggest emotion was just, was just unequivocated fear. Um, and the, so when I was 21 uh, or 22 was my, my attempt with hanging. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I didn't tell anybody that day, and, and I got down off the stool, and I'm like, I'm not going to tell anyone. And when I woke up the next morning, everybody kind of knew something was up, up because I'm just I was so freaking out of it. I mean, I was I was this close to stepping off, right? And you don't just bounce back the next day and right. be able to put on a happy. You just it, psychologically, I don't think anybody's that strong. Uh, I certainly wasn't. And so I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, I. 
I tried to hang myself last night and that just kind of, that was a, I mean, if, if there was a wrecking ball in any kind of conversation, that certainly was it. Yeah. Um, and, and they, they were like, what? And Cause they knew they didn't, uh, again, I, I didn't have, I'd taken medication for depression. I still didn't have a formal diagnosis yet. Sure. Um, uh, but we kind of knew like Gordon's having some mental illness and my folks were still struggling with like, is this still kind of like a real thing? And I was still going on like pissed off that I even had this thing. And yeah. so between a lot of the anger and the fear was just like, we don't know what the heck to do. So, um, you know, when I dropped that, that bomb on them, um, you know, the first thing they did was, uh, my mom called my therapist, uh, who I'd been seeing for about three years at that time. And, 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 she was the only one who had known about the, where my head had been suicidally um, gotcha. as far as like, um, like that's the track that my thoughts were going. And so this was just, this came out of the blue for my parents as far as they were concerned. Uh, and so my mom called my therapist and I'm 21 at the time, 22. And she goes, okay, we need an emergency appointment for Gordon. And he's like, okay, cool. We'll get him in in an hour. And she's like, and my mom's like, I want to be in the room. The woman's like, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> He's not a minor. And my mom was like, that's ridiculous. And she's like, that's the law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's what's going to happen here. And then, so uh, I went in and I, I talked with, with my therapist for, for a good little while. And then she's like, I really recommend an inpatient psychiatric uh, stay. Uh, here's where I'd recommend you go in, in the state. Uh, and then my folks took me in, in the truck. We drove down there. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm getting uh, searched. Uh, I'm, I, I get my, my shoes and my laces taken off and they give me some comfy socks with little treads on the bottom of them. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not allowed any sharp objects. I'm being checked in on every 15 minutes, night and day. Uh, and that was my first day uh, in, in a psychiatric hospital, which was uh, not what I originally expected it to be. And I also never expected, I was like, I was in there, I'm like, I'm never coming back to this space again. Looking back, I've been at six different hospitalizations in four different hospitals in two different states. Yeah. So, but yeah, it was, it's been a, a huge learning process, uh, for my family, a, a huge, just, um, coming to terms with this, um, coming to terms with a family history of this. My mother deals with depression, anxiety. My grandfather, uh, who's a child of the depression dealt with, uh, severe depression his entire life. And we didn't learn about this until like my second hospitalization. He was like, yeah, I take Wellbutrin. We're like, what? This would have been valuable information to know. Um, yeah. so, Based on that is, is, is again, a lot of the reasons why I, I, I especially enjoy speaking with adolescents, uh, but also connecting with, with their parents and their caregivers and their guardians of um, there's a lot that uh, can be shown symptom-wise that the a younger individual might not understand or, again, doesn't have the verbiage to, to explain it, uh, but, but can be perceived uh, with, a, with a critical enough eye. And... This is also something where I talk about when I talk about suicide, I'm like, this is a scary topic, but we don't have to be scared of it when we're talking about it. And that's what I try to bring to all the conversations I have and, and certainly to, to podcasts like yours where um, I'm trying to, to take the fear out of this, this fearful thing and just talk about how we can reasonably address it with the people that we care about. And my family's been through a huge learning curve. I've been through a huge learning curve. This thing that could have split us apart has brought us much closer together. Uh, and I'm fortunate now that, you know, I, I hope to live in Georgia the rest of my life. My sister's got a, a house yeah. in Dunwoody and my parents live in Roswell. We're pretty nearby. These are good things for, for us as a family, but also for me and my, and my, my permanent recovery. Uh, but I'm trying to shorten the learning curve so that other kids and other families don't have to have as much unnecessary suffering in my mind if they're dealing with um, the mental illness of a loved one. 
For sure, man. For sure. Um, I, yeah, I'm glad you're. In, I'm glad you're in Georgia, close to your family. I think that that's going to help a lot. I mean, wow. I mean, again, that's such a amazing story. To be honest with you, that's it's very powerful. I think too. I think that. So, I, I, my my next question kind of is: You talked about different ways to kind of help deal with everything that's going on, um, different tips that you give, talking, to, you know, speaking to people. So, I'm curious, and you know, I, I did a lot. You know, I looked at your website, and I, I thought it was very well put together. And Thank you. I, I'm curious. So, like, you, you're coming up with different ways and tips. Is that kind of the origin story of mentallyagile.com? Uh, in in a sense, in a, um, yeah. so it, 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 it the term uh, mental agility is actually comes back to when I was about 16. And okay. so I played lacrosse all through high school, a little bit into college. Um, but my, my first love from a physical standpoint was martial arts. And I trained in uh, Muay Thai kickboxing and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at a local gym up the street uh, for six, seven years, uh, where I would go to, I'd go right after school, I'd speed to the gym because this was my this was the place where I felt most at home Um, I didn't feel good at at high school uh, in high school with my peers and I didn't um, uh, feel not I felt safe at home but I also felt like I I still got to put on a bit of a face for my family's sake right okay but at the gym I could just you know you know the music would pump I get some exercise and I I just get to engage with a lot of people that shared a passion uh, and also, for some reason, as a 16-year-old, I could relate to 30 and 40 and 50-year-olds way better than I could my <laughs> fellow 16 and 17-year-olds. Yeah. Old soul in that space. Um, but I would I would spend two hours kickboxing and three hours rolling in jiu-jitsu a night wow. uh, every, every day. Um, and, and then I would come home at like 11 o'clock at night, maybe do some homework, wake up at 6 a.m., repeat the whole process. Um, and... When I was kickboxing and learning how to kickbox and getting into sparring, my instructor, Stevie B, we would spar. And this is a guy who he, he could whip my rear end 10 ways from Sunday. Yeah. Um, but he's, he was a great teacher. And so we're sparring. He's punching me repeatedly in the face. And I'm standing there, my feet in concrete, trying to execute like the perfect cover, block, return, whatever. Because I was real obsessed with technique. I still am. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a technician in that sense. And he smacks me in the face again. He goes, Gordon, are you ever going to move? And I go, (laughs) what? He goes, yeah, when I do this, you can move that way. And I'm like, ah, so like the sense of bobbing and weaving and being able to cover up and move my angle to avoid a attack and then be able to attack on my own terms without damage. uh, That was the seed of mental agility. And when my story went public in lacrosse magazine and I started to realize that I wanted to do some some more writing personally, but more more advocacy work uh, on my own terms and in my own words, uh, that was where I was like, you know what, that's the mentality that I want to create because um, in the sporting world, at least it's all about mental toughness, which is great, but we don't teach. We just say, we just say, gut it out, grit it out, rub some dirt on it. And that's great for a professional athlete or an exceptional college athlete, but it's not great for an eight year old or a 16 year old who's still learning what it is they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, Mental toughness is great if you know what to do already and you can put your head down and, and execute. But when you're still learning the techniques, it doesn't help you uh, when you're in that space in any kind of competitive environment um, to try to just pull through it. Uh, you need you need to be able to have a fuller sense of strategy and be able to move yourself. So I say in the same way that we move the body, I'm going to teach how to move the mind uh, because there are several strategies um, uh, from all over the freaking place. Uh, and I'm still excited to learn 
new ways that I can address my depression, my anxiety, my suicidal ideation, uh, but also just the general stressors in my life. Uh, and that's where mental agility really comes into. I'm doing a talk tomorrow at, at the U.S. Lacrosse Convention, virtually, of course. Very cool. Uh, yeah. And it's it's all about coaching agile minds. And I'm, I'm teaching coaches how to approach teaching adolescents um, how to deal with their thoughts more effectively um, without just constantly getting punched in the face by them because that's just going to drain their energy. So I've like, I've, I've got a, not a better way, just a different way. And if we can combine those mental agility, and mental toughness down the road, much more likely that, that individuals are going to persevere and be successful in, in whatever way they want to go about life. Man, you break, you break it down so simply. Just, it sounds like it's just so easy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, th- I think that's also remind me also not to mess with you in the gym. I think you would, <laughs> <laughs> I think you would tear me apart. But uh, uh, in, in your latest blog, you talk about uh, why we should eliminate the word should. Um, I'm hoping maybe you kind of can expand on that for, for us, my, my personal benefit, and, and for our listeners as well. Certainly. So why we should eliminate the word should. Uh, yeah. I like I – like, um, pithy titles. Um, so when I, when yeah. I get a chance to be a little ironic with, with titles, um, I, I go for it. Uh, I, I have found should um, to be almost as damaging uh, for my mental health as the word only. Uh, so again, to go back to, to Edwin Schneidman, um, uh, he said probably one of the biggest predictors of suicidality in an individual is their use of the word only as like, this is the only solution for me. I only have one path forward. If I can't do this, then suicide is the, is the only path, right? So that, that's right. A, a quote unquote uh, danger word that, that should set off alarm bells in other people's heads. Should is a very similar word for me. And I am very conscious about how I use that word uh, when it pops into my mind, when I hear it from other people. Uh, and I'll take you back to, to maybe 23 or so when I'm, I'm still with my, my long-term therapist okay. and I'm, I'm, I'm going through all the stuff where it's, okay, so I've been to two different colleges. I've had four different majors at this point in time. All my friends have graduated. Some are getting married. People are being successful. I'm still looking at a boatload of medical credit card debt. I don't have a degree. I'm still living in my parents' basement. Um, I'm not exactly executing uh, life the way a fairly privileged American white male should be able to do at 23, 24 years old, right? So I'm right. feeling all this societal pressure, but also that personal pressure of fulfilling all these expectations from society, my family, and, and, and certainly from myself. And I was doing all this, these should statements. I should be here in life. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Um, and even on the small sense, like I should be working out at five o'clock in the morning, every morning for an hour. Uh, and then I should be taking, uh, you know, eating healthily more and all these shoulds. And so I'm just, I'm just uh, piling these on myself in the therapy session. And my therapist is like, hey, Gordon, time out. When are you going to stop shooting all over yourself? <laughs> and I love dark humor. I think as a depressive, it has certainly gotten me out of a lot of binds or at least allowed me to, to stay alive. Yeah. Um, and so that's my flavor of humor and also the ones that are just kind of cutting in an unexpected way. And that, that shook me. Uh, I was stunned. I, I couldn't. I'm like, wait, what? Uh, and and I realized then that uh, I I had I had I had been shitting all over myself yeah. <laughs> with the with the word should, uh, and and piling these expectations on top of expectations on top of unrealistic expectations, uh, and taking things to such a logical extreme that it didn't make any sense, and there was no possible way I was able going to be able to either achieve or, or meet those goals. Right? There's not a, no chance. 
And and then I was using that as, as a reason for why my life wasn't worth living and why I was a burden to my parents and my sister and my friends, right? And then that was, becomes a reason for why I should end my life by suicide. So gotcha. should for me is a dangerous word. And I don't, when I'm coaching, I, I don't allow uh, my, my players to use it in a space like, oh, I should have made that catch. It's like, replace that in my word, my way. It, it doesn't always fit in terms of like the syntax, but I don't really care. Um, I replace should with the word need. Okay. So uh, when I tell someone like you, you should go do this when I'm observing an official or when I'm critiquing somebody and something at like that, I don't say you should do this. Because uh, it does put me in a bit of a superior position when I get to say that, right? That's just kind of the nature of that word. We've it comes from the old uh, old English word "skilled," which to me sounds a lot like "scold." Um, yeah, it 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 it, <clears throat> it 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 has these negative connotations, and I'm a believer in the power of words and language to evoke emotions and drive people in a in a way they might not otherwise consider. Yeah, and and when I say, I'd like you to try doing it this way, or I'll invite you to give this a shot, or I'd like to see you think about needing to do it in this fashion. Right? Yeah. Um, the word need for me is a much more powerful uh, social connector. Uh, number one, where I, I tell folks stuff like, I want you to do this. I, I, I really need you on, on this thing. It tends to draw people more to your side and your perspective, I've found. For sure. Um, I think so. And and it also, it, it's not a, it, 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 it puts you on, on the same uh, level as that individual, whatever it is that that you're doing or critiquing or, or helping them out with. Um, but I am I'm very I'm I'm so attuned now to in the same way that I can do cognitive behavioral therapy thought records in my head after doing that for a decade. Now, yeah. um, I I uh, the word should uh, sends out alarm bells in, in my head when I hear it um, and when I think it. That is a, a chance for me to say uh, that's a stop sign in my mind where I go. Do I really need to? phrase it this way is this something i really do need to be doing uh and then that tells me is like if i don't need to cool i can forget about it. it's not a problem if i do then that changes how i go with that and if it's somebody else coming on to me i go do i care about this person's opinion <laughs> and i have about five people uh in my life where from like a personal uh thing where they're allowed to critique me on like how i'm behaving and sure. i will respond to that as just like that's a that that's a that is an opinion i value and now that I live in Absolutely. kind of a semi-public space with mental health, anybody can comment on my stuff, and I welcome that. Um, but the internet is a cesspool for uh, commentary. For sure. And, for sure. It's a wonderful place. And, yeah, and so <laughs> is refereeing. Like, I've spent 15 years just getting yelled at for doing my job and doing it well. Um, and and to be able to take that kind of energy, absorb it, redirect it is, is another way that I, I, I say mental agility is, is superior in that space to mental toughness uh, in that manner. Uh, but the, the the thing about should is is I just I, I, I really despise that word. It is it has done me a great disservice, and I do not wish to put that on other people. So I, I am as I'm, I'm very careful about my use of it. Yeah. Wow. Very. Uh, yeah. Very very thought provoking stuff there. I'll definitely have to uh, take. That. I think that's I think that's interesting because when you say should, it's almost like almost kind of trapping yourself in a way. I don't know. It just it seems very. Yeah, especially when you're talking about the uh, leading into I can only do this, this or this. You know what I mean? Instead of kind of thinking outside the box, like, well, well, you could move this way and avoid the hit. You know, you know, it's either there's there's an interesting when you talk about kind of moving on that one. So um, uh, I've been reading a lot more about uh, evolutionary and biological physiology uh, yeah. over time. 
uh, and I forget his name, might be Andrew Huberman. Uh, but so when you're in that fight or flight stress response, which is all you're in in a depressive state, yeah. you do get you do get you get that emotional tunnel vision I talked about, but you also get like this constricted tunnel, actual tunnel vision, right? Yeah. You can call it shell shock, uh, you can call it PTSD, call it a thousand yard stare. Every generation has called it something a little bit different. Um, but physiologically, you get locked into this very small, narrow perception of things. Uh, so he's like, one of the easier ways to break out of that when you're in that space is to start looking at your peripheral vision and moving your eyes left to right, physically moving them. Okay. Um, and that, again, trips a thing where uh, when you're relaxed and the, and the parasympathetic nervous system is turned on, your gaze is naturally wider. And as much as we like to think that the body can control the mind, there's so many ways that the body goes towards the mind as well. And so... I'm in a space, I do it with breathing exercises predominantly, uh, but I've also been in a space where it's, if you can take intentionally when you're feeling yourself constricted mentally yeah. to walk, walk physically widen your gaze and, and look left to right, left to right, you're going you're to start seeing that heart rate go down. You're going to start seeing your thoughts slow down. And that's just from a pure, how the body reacts to stresses uh, and relaxation. And then that can feed back into your brain and be like, no, everything's, everything's cool right now. You can think it's all right. It's all, it's, it's, we can think it's all good. Um, Chelsea, did you have something? I'm sorry. I, it looked like you. Okay. No, I, well, I have, I do like your semicolon on your vest. Um, so I don't, <laughs> and, um, I so I don't know cool. what that means, but do you want to go ahead and let our listeners know the significance of what that means? Sure. So project semicolon is really a grassroots program. That and uh, the organization To Ride Love on Her Arms um, are two really grassroots okay. uh, suicide prevention advocacy uh, organizations. And uh, they're ones I'm, I'm a fan of because I, I, I enjoy the written word and, and my experience, and certainly in my own writing, the semicolon is criminally underused uh, in English <laughs> and criminally uh, misunderstood. So the semicolon is used uh, in writing uh, for when an author wants to uh, take a sentence and pause it and then continue on with a related sentence, right? Okay. But they don't want something as final as a period. It's like these things are connected to each other. So with uh, when I got exposed to Project Semicolon, the way they put it is that the the uh, suicidal individual, the person who attempted suicide um, or has lost someone to, uh, get the semicolon tattoo, or in my case, a pin, because I, I enjoy lapel pins as much as vests, is the the that's the the person who's the author of their story chooses to put a semicolon a pause and then continue their life makes um, sense that that is the 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 use of the semicolon and the the interesting thing is of, of this one so i've got this full forearm full sleeve tattoo of dante's inferno uh which i've written about and, and is a poem that i love to read every year um but this the semicolon tattoo was the first piece of it i got that and so i didn't have this whole forearm bit uh and i go to like the grocery store and like you know it, uh, Somebody, you know, I, I'd be, they'd be doing that and they catch that when I pull out my credit card or my cash. Uh, and then the, the cashier would like turn around and she'd like point to the semicolon, like right behind her ear. And, or like somebody would see it at a convention and they just kind of nod and I'd nod back. It's this kind of really subtle underground thing for folks who just know what it means, which is just yeah. a really cool way to kind of bond with strangers. Uh, but then at the same time, I've had folks like, oh, what does that mean? And I give them that short explanation and they're like, man, I'm really glad you're still around. Thanks. 
And I'm like, cool. And like, I don't know this person, uh, but it's still another element of connection cool. that I, w- I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so that's the semicolon bit and the whole tattoo. I'm, I'm covered generally. Um, but the, the, the forearm tattoo and, and the scenes that it has and some of the quotes that I've got on it um, are, are reminders for me on how I want to live my life day to day. But also uh, mental illness. My depression is invisible unless I'm severely depressed, in which case it's pretty obvious. Um, but I, I have a great way of hiding the early and middle stages of my stuff. I'm really good at that. Um, this is a way to put my mental illness visible um, and, and gives me an opportunity for people to be able to, to be like, what's that mean? And I'm like, well, here you go. And then here's a little bit about my story. And they're like, oh, and then that kind of opens them up in that space as well. So it's it's me just kind of, uh, uh, you know, putting my, my, my colors out there, so to speak. Naturally kind of breaking the ice there as well. Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> much so. Very much, awesome. Uh, so uh, I noticed that we, we've thought about at, uh, something that we do with our podcast and our ministries about starting a blog. So we, we, we've had some discussions about that before. And I'm curious because I, I saw your blog and we talked a little bit about it, about eliminating the word should. What made you want to, to start that? And what do you find that the best part about writing one is? Uh, well, it's interesting. The, the, the big thing is, is that you want to... It's not about. It's not about trying to grow just the blog. It's do you sure. actually want to? Do you actually want to write like that? I would think would be absolutely the thing that. That kind of like if folks are interested in that, like yeah, you might have a good idea, but if you don't have just enjoy the writing process, don't do it. It's you're you're, you're not going to enjoy yourself. Right, it can't be a um, chore. Right, um, and so I've been writing. Um, so my family ran, ran a youth lacrosse league called Atlanta Youth Lacrosse. I wrote maybe four hundred art articles from the time I was a teenager into my mid twenties, just writing stuff. And then when I went to US Lacrosse, I would do the same thing. I'm, uh, uh, I was I was writing technical manuals and guides and blog posts about explaining to people what officiating is, how to honor the game, different ways to approach things. Uh, so I've always been a- attracted to writing in that space. Um, and my, my sister as well, she's, she's the, the best editor I know. So she'll, if I got big things, I'll, I'll send that to her and she'll help me edit it down. But the, the blog for me is a way for me to, like, I'm a field advocate for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I donate to NAMI, um, and a couple other organizations and these are great and i've done some talks for them that are are pre-prepared speeches that i kind of follow through and and they're educational right uh and and that's great in one sense and then for the part of me that's kind of stubborn and i kind of like to do things kind of my own way and my own flavor um allows the the blog allows me that outlet and it's twofold It, it lets me do that and then it allows me to continue being introspective in a healthy way. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the dark, deep recess corners of my brains, having it out with my depression. Uh, now with the blog um, and with some of the videos I do of showing different techniques, whether it's cold immersion therapy or breathing exercises or sure. uh, the mammalian dive reflex, whatever it might be, um, it allows me to snap myself out of, uh, to take me out of the emotion that I'm feeling and what I'm at and, and approach it from a logical sense. So I've had, I've, I've written, I wrote the whole time I was in the uh, psychiatric uh, 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 hospital at Skyland Trail. I wrote a four month blog series called Treatment Life. Where I was from the hospital and my experiences with ECT to my time in the group home to my time in the inpatient uh, or the outpatient intensive outpatient program. Yeah. Uh, and going there every day and doing eight hours of therapy every day for my full-time job until my brain was in a healthy space. Um, that was a way for me to analyze myself in a, in a, in a very safe way uh, and also for me to 
to be able to look back now and go, okay, this is kind of where I was, this is where I am now, this is good. Uh, but it also helps. I know I'm helping some folks who, who reach out to me and be like, hey, I read a blog or my son, my daughter's scheduling this. And, and I now feel like I have some language that I can approach them with in a healthy fashion. I'm like, cool, now we're lowering the learning curve. Now we're uh, now we're decreasing unnecessary suffering in my mind. We're, we're making it more likely that someone's going to, to live a more fulfilling life on their terms. Uh, that's where the, the, the blog has grown into. At, at first, it was just an opportunity for me, me to kind of just scream into the void sure. <laughs> and, and now now it's come into a space where i can really analyze i talk about different types of cognitive distortions i talk about different kinds of therapies different uh the most up-to-date uh, uh data on suicide and suicide prevention uh and and a whole host of weird stuff that i run into that i try to tie into uh, ways to, to, to live a, a life that somebody might want to live, uh, whether they have a mental illness or not. So that's that's where it's grown to. I'm pretty unhappy with it. And I'm just like, if somebody wants to write a blog, cool. Just want to write in the process. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely, man. Well, earlier you, you, um, you kind of spoke about like um, different strategies and different ways to kind of think and, 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 and kind of train the mind. I'm wondering what's your personal go-to strategy for yourself on if you find yourself kind of in in one of those depressive states? Is it the eyes? Is it like, you know, like moving your eyes a little bit? Is it is it you know just going somewhere different or what's your personal go to? That's a relatively new one. Um, so I'd say that 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 isn't as, as maybe automatic as some sure. others. Um, okay. kind of playing. I'm still kind of playing around with that one. Um, the, the the one that is my go to and I use this on the field and refereeing. I use this before um, having difficult conversations with people. I use this before getting into or, or once I get before I start my car engine um, is just breath work. Um, okay. And it's, 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 it sounds so freaking simple, but I'm like, this is the one thing we carry with us, regardless of if, if we're, we're wearing anything or not, we're, we're always breathing. Yeah. And this is a thing that's under some degree of conscious control that we can, we can use that, that again, that body to brain connection to be able to influence our thoughts for the better. Um, so I use that to de-stress all the time. Probably the, the one that, um, uh, it took my dad for a loop. So when I was still at US lacrosse, we had a West Coast lacrosse convention. We had it in Las Vegas. My dad had been there a time or two before. I had never been. I know it's not my scene already going into it. There's bright flashing lights and a whole bunch of people and loud noises. I don't like any of that stuff. Right? Yeah. Very small burst. So we're walking through because we were like, all right, we'll gamble a little bit. Because I was like, I've never done this. You got to do that at least once, I feel. Let's let's just enjoy that. Let's go for it. Uh, yeah. So after spending the $20 surcharge at the casino ATM, we, we hit the floor <laughs> and did some gambling. And But the whole time we're walking through the Bellagio, uh, I'm doing breathing exercises. I'm doing circle breathing. Um, I'm making sure my exhales are longer than my inhales. Uh, I'm doing some breath holds and different diaphragmatic uh, 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 breathings as, as well as uh, muscle tension or relaxation. I pair that as well. Uh, and then we go to the slot machines. We do some of that. And we, we go to the, the blackjack table and do some of that. And then I wrote up a post about how I was uh, doing that. And my dad was like, what? It was like, I was like, yeah, he was just like, I had no idea. I'm like, yeah, that's why I do it because it's not like I, I don't have to like sit and meditate in the middle of the Bellagio, you know, atrium yeah. and draw attention to myself in that space. That's not going to help, help my anxiety, but I can um, calm myself down in a way that nobody notices um, yeah. and is remarkably effective for uh, lowering my stress levels and, and letting me think more clearly. I do that whether I'm, um, again, I do that 
in the moment. If I'm feeling a panic attack coming on, more often than not, I can breathe myself out of it. If not, I always have an emergency clonopin somewhere. Um, and uh, or I do that preventatively. So, so for example, when I get into my car, before I turn the engine on, I'll do three to five really deep diaphragmatic breathing exercises. And it's remarkable how much calmer my drive to whatever I'm going is. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It takes, it takes all the 15 seconds and I just have a much better ride. So that's, well, that's, that's my go-to. That, hey, you know what? If you give 15 seconds to have a much smoother ride anywhere you're going, I feel like that's a good investment. Yeah, that's it great. Works out. We actually had a counselor on one time. His name was Harold Boggs, and he talked about the importance of breathing and breathing through the nose, and uh, and, and so he was practicing that as well. So I definitely need to, uh, uh, not should, need to. Start working on some of this with <laughs> the breathing exercises. Well, hey man, I saw on your website that you talk about philosophy, uh-huh. and so I'm wondering, do you have a favorite philosopher? And if you do. And I don't know. I don't know if anybody's asked this before, but is there a specific quote that's stuck with you um, throughout your life? Uh, I have I have a tattooed uh, where I can read it every day when I need a reminder. Nice. Um, and all it is. So my favorite philosopher uh, is is in my opinion the only real philosopher king that there's ever been, mm-hmm. Marcus Aurelius, um, who was a practicing Stoic. And I took a different approach to this. So I've I've. Uh, there's been a kind of a renaissance in Stoic philosophy um, lately. Um, yeah. The daily Stoic comes up. There's a lot of stuff, in it, and it, it appeals very much to folks who are uh, have, have served in, in the military in some capacity or, or any type of real dangerous type job where they need to be able to separate kind of those stresses from the rest of their lives and not bring that home with them kind of deal. Yeah. Um, so we're seeing a bit of a renaissance on that, and I enjoy – the quote is, confine yourself to the present. And it's just a reminder that uh, the future isn't here yet. It doesn't actually exist. Uh, and the past, um, to use a, a quote from Orson Scott, one of Orson Scott Card's character, uh, the past is a woven tapestry that, that cannot be unwoven. Um, yeah. So you, you only have this, this present moment. And, and that's the biggest thing with all meditation, really all philosophy, um, all yoga, is trying to enjoy just the present. And that's remarkably difficult for us to do. Again, uh, I think because of somehow we evolved uh, to survive uh, from a biological standpoint. Um, but I, I teach students, I go, the, the, the mind itself is skewed to the negative. It does that naturally. Um, like you can remember so many more bad things that happened to you last week than you can good things. You have to work harder to remember the good things. I could go long into the, the, the yeah. psychological reasons for that. Um, but that's just the, that's how the brain is. Um, and so we, we have to work knowing that bias and confine yourself to the present uh, is a, a way that I use to remind myself. I'm like, I, I don't need to go down the rabbit hole of what ifs. That's just going to stress me out even more, uh, and I, I don't need to, to ruminate, which is the, the the kind of the the hallmark of depression of just going yeah. back in these things of of again I should have done this I should have done that uh, and and wallowing in those regrets. So it's can you be in the present moment and just enjoy breathing or doing whatever it is you're doing? And the reason I picked Marcus Aurelius as my favorite philosopher is that it's interesting to me because it, I think it's easy to go like you know you see the folks. Uh, uh, the Buddha would be a good example of this one, um, uh, but then any type of aesthetic uh, or ascetic who is, you know, we, t- we tend to look at uh, folks who are like in the present moment as folks who remove themselves from society as much as possible, right? yeah. uh, who, who uh, uh, 
say, you know, I'm going to uh, renounce all worldly pleasures. I'm going to renounce uh, my responsibilities. I'm going to uh, just focus on, on, on learning this philosophy and embodying this as best as I can. And that kind of stuck didn't really stick because I'm just like, I, I don't think there's space for that personally in, in my life. Like I, right. I can't just retreat from everything. Um, and I, and I also can't just be, I, I feel it would be a disservice with the skills that I have to just shut myself out from the world. Um, and, and try to embody a, a particular philosophy or school of thought. Uh, Marx really appeals to me because he was at the time, the single most powerful human being on the planet. If he wanted all the gold in Rome, he could order it and they would be delivered to him. He yeah. could order any any woman in any harem was his if he wanted to. He could eat any freaking thing he wanted, regardless of the season. It would be brought to him, right? Yeah. Um, that is ridiculous when you get down to it. It's just like to, to have that kind of power as a human being meant that he had no peer. Everybody came yeah. to him wanting something. And so he, 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 he stepped back and he said, okay, how am I going to live my life? He, he, he actually quotes in his, in his uh, memoirs, Meditations, which was never meant to be published. So it's kind of like really getting into, into his, his mind that he expected to be um, uh, just talking to himself for the rest of his life. Uh, he's like, he, he felt he had the misfortune to be born the emperor of Rome. Um, and because he wanted to study, he wanted to study philosophy. That's what he enjoyed. Yeah. But he, he had all these other obligations and responsibilities to people. Uh, and he said, so I'm going to make it my mission then to um, live the best possible life that I can. And he confined yourself to the president, one of them. But the the breath of wisdom that comes from that of just saying, like, this person willingly wasn't a dick. Yeah. And didn't just take advantage for his own gain. He, he made the best out of what some would consider something like winning the lottery every day for your life. For real. <laughs> he made the best out of that, uh, in a way that I don't think has ever really been seen, uh, in any, uh, certainly Western ruler that, that I've studied. And that's why I, I gravitate to him. Cause I say like, you know what, if he had the responsibility over millions of souls in, the, in one of the largest empires ever, uh, and that he can live a good measured, responsible life and still maintain his, his responsibilities and his duties, then, then I, I can do that with the lesser things that I have to worry about. Yeah. Instead of a whole, instead of a, an, an entire empire. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very, I, what I have is a bit more manageable. <laughs> Something a bit more manageable day to day. Very good. Well, well man, I, before we kind of wrap up here, I just have my kind of one final question and that is you, you spoke, you, we talked about kind of your, your speaking engagements that you've, that you've done before in your workshops. So you've spoken to people such as Eastern Oregon university's women lacrosse team, pace Academy and the national association of sports officials is there a specific moment that stands out to you from any of those speaking engagements that really sits with you and resonates with you? Hmm. Bit of a loaded question. That, that is. I'm, I'm going back now to to those talks. And hmm. I think the one when I spoke with Pace, so I um, – I spoke in their auditorium, uh, so about the four the four hundred students in the upper school. Yeah, and uh, and and this was the school I had gone to. I graduated from Pace in '06, um, so I could talk. I was Very in the, cool. the I was in their seats quite literally, and and 
it was an excellent talk and, and I felt I connected with them well and they responded to what I was saying well. Uh, but then the more impactful thing was, so I stayed uh, for the whole day there. They gave me an, an unused classroom uh, and said, hey, if anybody wants to just go talk to Gordon and dig more into this stuff, go for it. And I had a couple students come on by over the course of the day and, and cool. yeah, with their high school problems, sure. Um, sure. But, but I was trying to give them some perspective and some, again, other ways to, to address what they were directly going through. And then my old history teacher, I'm, I'm walking out of the building. I'm, I'm ready to to leave for the day uh, and it was last period and my, my teacher Miss Smith from uh, my history and my AP poli sci class pulls physically grabs me and pulls me into the room like, we need your help I go okay and it's like half the room looked like they were on the verge of tears like the stress was palpable yeah you feel it in, in that room and, and she was just like I don't even feel good about starting a lesson right now. Is there anything you can do to kind of help us out here? I'm like yeah sure let's turn off the lights and I'll lead everybody through a 10 minute meditation and I did. And we got done with it. And uh, uh, there, there were misty eyes throughout the whole room. And this one girl just looked at me. She, I was just like, so how do y'all feel? And she's like, I feel so good. And you could just, you could, I could visibly see the weight come off of her shoulders. And the energy in that room just got so much more serene. And just to be able to introduce to 10 students a way to take a little bit of the weight off their shoulders meant the world to me because that was what I wish I would have had when I was in those seats as well. Um, so that yeah. was, that's probably still the most impactful moment for me and what I was doing because it just, it showed that this stuff does work and it does show that young people are, are capable of, of, of taking maybe not control of their thoughts. I still don't really think that's there, but taking, um, taking the reins more strongly and being able to guide their thoughts in a more responsible fashion. That is well within there and, and anybody else's capabilities. Wow. Amazing, amazing stuff. Well, Gordon, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. We really do appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you and I, I felt the things that you talked about, about eliminating the word should. And I mean, gosh, man, what a, what a story, right? All the way back to uh, in your early years. And it, it was great having you on, man. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, man. I, I enjoyed our chat and uh, yeah, look forward to seeing where your podcast grows in the future. Hey, us too, man. We're, we're, we're getting there slowly, but surely, slowly, but surely. <laughs> but before we go, if you want to take a minute and kind of go ahead and plug anything that you wanted to plug to our, our very limited audience at the moment, but just uh, where, where can we find you? What, what do you got going on? What's next? For sure. You? Uh, so you can, anybody can go to my website, mentallyagile.com. Uh, my email address is G Corsetti at mentallyagile.com. And then I'm all over the, the main social media. So, um, uh, Facebook and Instagram is at mentally agile. Uh, Twitter is mental underscore agility and LinkedIn is just uh, Gordon Corsetti. Uh, so that's just the professional front for, for sure. me on that one. Um, but you can just Google me. I will pop up. If you just Google my name, uh, I've, I've written enough now that, that, that Google spiders can find me. And uh, I love hearing from folks. I love getting new ideas for therapies and, and techniques I might not have heard of because I use myself as a guinea pig. Um, so send me stuff, send me ideas, send me troubles, whatever. And, and, and then I can use that to kind of craft the next round of, of stuff that hopefully goes out and helps people. Very, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Gordon, again, for coming on. Guys, we're going to have links down to mentallyagile.com and some of his socials down in the description below. So if you guys want to go ahead and check him out, send him an email, get him on your podcast. He's a good guest and always fun to talk to. But guys, I think, Chelsea, do you have anything else before we kind of wrap on up? No, I'm good. I, I greatly appreciate your time. And I think for our viewers, one of the biggest things that we try to do in the ministry is, is 
gain as many perspectives as possible. Um, you know, I think we're all kind of firm believers in perspective being one of the most powerful tools, um, you know, to be able to reach as many as we can. And, and so I, I greatly appreciate your time and your perspective. Love it all. My pleasure. Wonderful words to kind of end the show, guys. You can find us where all podcasts can be heard. Places like Apple, Spotify, Google. We're all over the place. Just look us up at Spiraling Podcast. And we hope to see you guys on the next one. You guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Goodbye.